That's pretty cool, right? And that was the whole book of Job right there. Right there. You got the answer. I don't have to preach anymore, really. You know, like it's just, there it is. I think it's helpful to see like where we're going before we get there. You know, like here's, here's Job. Here's the overview. Here's the, the highs and the lows. And there's a lot of lows, but this is where we're going for 12 weeks. We're going to take a break at Easter and, and, and during that, you know, time kind of focus in it on Jesus's life for maybe four weeks, but we'll go through about May with this series or maybe, you know, early May with the series on Job. So, um, I'd invite you to turn to Job chapter one. Job chapter one. <clears throat> you have a hard time finding it. Psalms is probably smack dead center in the, in your Bible and Job is right before that. Those of you that have been through significant trials that have changed your life, I think sometimes we mark time by those things that have happened. There was the before, and then there's the after. And so what I want to do this morning is, I want to talk about Job B.C. That is, he's before Christ, of course, but before calamity, okay? I want to talk about Job B.C., before calamity, before everything happened that would change his life forever. Now, before we jump in, a couple things you ought to know is, uh, Job is probably written during, uh, sometime during the time of Genesis. A lot of scholars think that Job came about after the time of Noah. We see that he does sacrifices, so there's some understanding there of how sacrifices work. Noah understood sacrifices. Maybe he was a contemporary of Abraham, you know, the patriarchs, those guys. Uh, that's our best guess. The other interesting thing is about Job is, it's probably the oldest book of the Bible that was written. Now, I'm not saying it predates Genesis in its history. I'm saying just like, what is the oldest book probably that was written by somebody? And probably we're talking about Job because it was written before Israel came about. And a lot of us uh, think that Moses wrote, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So that would mean Job would be the oldest. So that's kind of interesting that one of the, one of the oldest books of the Bible that we have, if we're correct on this, deals with how do I relate to God in the midst of suffering? Like, that's it. So I, I'm really looking forward to going through this book with the church. Uh, I've had this in my heart for a couple years to preach through Job. I'm not going to ignore the long speeches that are in the middle of the book. A lot of times we read the, the front part of Job, and then we skip to the end. You know you do it. And you want to see how it all turns out. Like, I want to see when God shows up in the whirlwind and the storm, you know. Um, but but in the middle, there's a lot of interesting things that Job's friends say. And we're going to look at that stuff, too, even though we can't look at it maybe at the depth, you know, we'd be here forever. We'd be here for a few years if we did all the speeches and examined them verse by verse. But we are going to look at those. And I would recommend that you read them. You know, I think they're, they're, they're good things to read and consider what's going on in the dialogue part. Okay, we're starting slow this morning. We're just going to do the first five verses. Here we go. Uh, Job 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 
and 500 donkeys and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. This is Job B.C. Before the calamity that would take his children, his wealth, his health, all of it away. This is Job. Let me describe him in these first five verses. Let me paint a picture of this man named Job. I believe he was an historical man, lived in a historical place. We don't know where Uz is, Uz is, but um, I do believe Uz was. So um, I think that he's a real person, and we read him through the historical uh, context of he lived in this land, and this really did happen to him in his life. So who is Job? I'm going to say four things about Job that I think we ought to notice in the opening chapters. And as I say these things about Job, I'm going to relate it to what happens to him later. So so we're already kind of looking a little bit into the suffering he'll go through, but I want to see it through the lens of Job B.C., okay? So you'll see what, what I do uh, as, as we go through it. So A, who is Job? He is a righteous man that does not deserve the calamity that is about to befall him. Job is a righteous man. So when you get this description of Job, when you look at verse 1, it's like in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. Consider those two words, blameless and upright. It refers to his integrity and it refers to his behavior, how he lives his life. He had good character. He was an upright person. So when I think about this, I'm reading about Job and I hear about his family, I hear about his wealth, I hear about his sons having feasts in their homes. But the first thing the Bible tells me about Job is he is a righteous man. That is no mistake that on the list of descriptions, that is at the top. May it be for us too that that when we think about one another that, that we see people's righteousness we see how they're living their life that that is one of the top qualities and that's job and the reason it's said that way is so that all of us can understand that all the chapters we're going to spend looking at job's life and what's happened to him and how he's feeling we get the insight and god agrees with it we're going to see next week god agrees that job is a righteous man and doesn't deserve what's happening to him Now, I have talked to Christians, and it's often been said, and maybe you've heard this, that bad things happen to good people. Um, And when you try to figure out, like, why, why why do bad things happen to good people? Some people answer, well, there are no good people, and that's why bad things happen. You know, and and I understand where they're coming from, because I read Romans, and I know there's no one that's righteous, no, not one. And, 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 and I know that we all have a sin nature. I, I believe in total depravity, right? So, so this sin lives in me. Even as a Christian, I struggle. But on the other hand, even though I would agree theologically with there are no good and perfect people, there are certainly people who relate to God 
in a right way and are righteous. And Job is one of those guys. Remember in a few verses, it says he sacrifices for sin. In fact, he's so concerned that he even cares about the heart issues. He says, I'm sacrificing for my kids because maybe one of them cursed God in their heart. Like, this is a guy that cares what's going on in here. That, that you make sure you don't curse God in your heart. Like, he's not just worried about the outward, he's worried about the inward. This is exactly what Jesus talks about when he talks about cleaning the inside of the cup. Job is an inside cup cleaner. He's a righteous man. And so you can't read Job and say, well, at some point he did something, and, and I know bad things happen because we're all sinners. I understand that the all of creation groans under sin. I get that. But I also understand that Noah was a righteous man. He related to God the right way. God spared him. Job is a righteous man. And God says so. I'm not saying he's perfect. I'm not saying he's sinless. I'm saying he is a person that sacrifices for his sin and relates to God in the right way and strives to live a life of integrity. That's who he is as a person. And of course that brings us to the the difficult question of, well, I think when we all go through hard things, we all wonder, did I do something? Have I done wrong? We'll take that question up later. But maybe to say a couple words now, clearly when you sin, sin has natural consequences. You know, So if you cheat on your taxes and you get caught and you have to pay a fine or something, that's just that you can't say, oh, why am I being punished by this oppressive government? You know, that, that's not it. The government's there to catch you. And you should have just paid up, you know. And so, so, so you can't say, I'm the righteous sufferer, you know. You, you can't do that. Because sin has built-in natural consequences. And we all understand that. And parents often try to discipline with natural consequences as much as they can. And then there's the Lord's discipline. Sometimes the Lord disciplines us and He wants us to link something that's happening in our lives to uh, a place where He's trying to draw us back. But listen, when I discipline my kids, I don't leave them in the dark about it. I, I don't discipline them and say, figure it out. You know, you did something. You know, I could do that every day probably. You know, I'm sure you did something at school today that was worthy of discipline. Go to your room. You know, uh, what? What is it? And so I believe as a loving Heavenly Father, God's discipline does make sense to us. It becomes clear like, oh, God's trying to draw me back. But in many cases, and maybe my, maybe I can say this. When someone tells me that they're suffering, my default, I'll use that word, my default is to think, I wonder if this is a righteous person suffering. Like that's where I go default. Unless I know other things or unless God is making something clear to them. That when I'm suffering in the dark, I think a good default mode is a righteous person suffering. I think that's a good way to look at it unless God shows you something different and clear. And this is Job. B. Job is a wise man who struggles to make sense of his calamity. Why do I call him a wise man? Because it says he is, uh, in the end of verse 1, it says he fears God and shuns evil. Now, how do I link that with wisdom? Would you turn to Job 28? I don't think I'm going to get a chance to preach Job 28, although it's one of my favorite chapters in Job. 
um, well worth looking at and thinking about. Job 28. Uh, in the middle of the book of Job, in the middle of all of the, the friends coming in and, and saying, Job, you must have done wrong. That's why you're suffering. In the middle of Job, there's this interesting interlude. You know, it's kind of like push the pause button and let's just say a couple things about wisdom. And in, in Job 28, verse 1, it says, There is a mine for silver and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth and copper is smelted from ore. Mortals put an end to darkness. They search out the farthest recesses for ore in the blackest darkness. Far from human dwellings, they cut a shaft in places untouched by human feet. Far from other people, they dangle and they sway. And then if you jump down to verse 12, he asks the big question, But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal can comprehend its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says it's not in me. The sea says it's not with me. It can't be bought with the finest gold, nor can its price be weighed out in silver. And as you read Job 28, here's what's going on here. You kind of get this hymn to wisdom. You get a hymn to wisdom. And the hymn basically goes like this. Men dig into the ground, into the earth. They go into caves and, and they look for precious stones. Many of you have been into caves where they've looked for stone, they looked for copper, they looked for precious metals, and you've seen it. You've been there. I went to one last summer. You know, it's a really cool thing to see. And, and you're down in the darkness. The people said there's something valuable down there, and I'm going to go get it. And, and the whole point of Job 28 is to say, wisdom is a lot harder to find than copper in the earth. Wisdom is a whole lot harder to get a hold of. And it's a whole lot more valuable than that. Because he says, can you buy it with gold? No, you can't. It's priceless. It's hard to find. And then you get to the end of the hymn, and check this out. Uh, We'll start in verse 22. I love this. Destruction and death say, only a rumor of it has reached our ears. God understands the way to it. He alone knows where wisdom dwells. For he views the ends of the earth. He sees everything under the heavens. When he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters. When he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm. And then he looked at wisdom and appraised it. He confirmed it. He tested it. And he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. You see? We understand how storms work. Meteorologists can predict the weather with with somewhat good accuracy. We get days off of school sometimes just because they predicted it's coming, right? Yeah, you know, kids like it when you know it doesn't come, and yet we still get it off, right? But but the idea being, we understand so much about science, and there is a science to wisdom. There are un changing laws to wisdom because God has established wisdom just like he has established this created world and everything we can study and figure out down to the molecule down to the atom wisdom is also an established thing unchanging it's wisdom and it says if you want to get that wisdom you can't buy it you can't find it it all comes from fearing the Lord 
It's all based on a relationship with God. That's how you get wisdom. Fear the Lord. And when you shun evil, it shows that you have understanding. So someone that doesn't shun evil is a fool. Because of the way they're living. They they may understand a lot of things and they may have some degrees behind their name. But if they don't fear the Lord and shun evil, they are a fool. Because this is established by God. It's firm. Now go back to Job 1. And in the first verse, you see that Job is described as someone who fears God and shuns evil. Wisdom is to fear God. Shunning evil is understanding. Job, then, is a wise man. Now think about this. Job is a wise man. In other words, he has a level of insight and understanding about how life works. He's been living a righteous life. He is a wise man. He even knows that sometimes when his kids have celebrations, my kids party and things might get out of hand and I want to make sure I'm there for them. You know? I get how life works. I get that when you get together and you have a party and maybe you've been drinking and feasting and maybe something comes up in your heart that was against God. And he's a wise person. He knows how life works. But here's the thing. Over the course of this book, we're going to see that the wise man is struggling to figure out why calamity has struck. So so let me say this. Job is primarily not about suffering. Job is primarily about a theological problem. A theological fight with God. Because if life is all chance and all random, then your suffering is meaningless. Who cares? It doesn't matter. But if there is a God, and He relates to us, He can be near us, then I've got to ask the question, why is this God letting this stuff happen to me? And now I've got a theological problem. And that's the whole book of Job. That's all the conversation. They all center around, why has God done this? Why me? Can I say one more thing about fear of God before I... I I'm going a little bit off the beaten path here a little bit, but... Um, I've heard enough people in the church say, well, we don't fear God anymore because perfect love casts out fear. You know, have you heard that? So we don't have to fear God anymore. Um, and, and I agree with them that we no longer fear God's judgment. But I tend to view fearing God as a way of looking at God and standing in awe and reverence to everything He is. And when, when you see who He is, it should make you quake a bit at times, right? Because He is awesome. He is amazing. Revelation 1, description of Jesus. It is, um, I'm not going to say scary, but just like you see John's response. And he falls down. That is our God. And so I can say of our God, he, Jesus is a person that I could see giving a hug to, but he's still an awesome Savior and Lord. But maybe the better way, maybe to show you in Scripture why we shouldn't just toss out fearing God. Um, and you can turn here and keep your finger in Job if you want, although you can just hear me read it. Deuteronomy 10.12. Deuteronomy 10.12 really helped me with this whole fear versus love thing. And I've heard some people suggest maybe Job's relationship with God was very deficient in the beginning and that he needed this suffering to really bring him to a good relationship with God. I don't see that. I don't see that here. This is Deuteronomy 10.12. Um. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to Him, to love Him, 
to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Do you see those two words? He's asking you to fear Him. He's asking you to love Him. I don't think these two things are mutually exclusive. I think you can stand in reverence and fear of an amazing God who loved you enough to send His Son to die for you. Right? I think you could do both of those at the same time. When you look at the cross, isn't it, isn't it something that you, that you show reverence to? That there's a healthy fear of God as you look at the cross and yet you see in the cross Jesus loves you? I don't think in those terms very much, but I think I should more and more. Because I don't think they're separate. And Deuteronomy doesn't treat them as separate. Okay, there's Job. Uh, next one. Um, back to my notes. Job is a wealthy man who will lose everything except his faith in God. He's a wealthy man. Check out what he's got. Uh, I'm not doing the family yet. We're doing verse 3. He owns 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the east. So you get these fives and sevens and threes. We know seven is a number of completeness. And so scholars suggest that the whole thing kind of symbolizes that, that Job's got it all. He's got it all. The five thousands and seven thousands. You notice he has seven sons and three daughters. The guy has it all. And then all of it's taken away. Have you ever, have you ever known somebody or heard of somebody that was really fabulously wealthy and then they lose it all? They go bankrupt? How tempting is it for you to say, I bet they had it coming. I bet they did something. I bet they cheated somewhere. I bet they stepped on the little guy and now that they get what's coming. That, that's karma, right? You know, they got what's coming to them. I, I think we all fall into that trap at times when we see people above us on, in the social ladder and then see them fall down a number of pegs. All right? Have you ever walked down a big city and you've seen somebody, a homeless person sitting there begging for money and you judge them in your own heart? I mean, isn't that what we do? Isn't that the temptation we face? I know their life decisions got them there. I know their sins put them on that street corner. Have your life decisions been so good that you deserve everything you've got? Or should you be on the street corner too, but for the grace of God? This is what we do. He's a wealthy man that will lose everything, and he doesn't deserve to lose it. Maybe you never knew this about Job. I'd invite you to turn to Job 29. I'm going to keep painting this picture for us of who Job is. Look at Job 29, verse 11. Job 29, 11. Job says, Whoever heard me spoke well of me, and those who saw me commended me, this is verse 12, Job 29, 12, because I rescued the poor who cried for help, and the fatherless who had none to assist them. The one who was dying blessed me, and I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing, Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind. I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked. I snatched the victims from their teeth. I thought I will die in my own house. My days as numerous as the grains of sand. And then he kind of goes on there, right? Um, and, and, and in this, I don't believe Job is bragging. I want, I want to put that out there. He's being accused by his friends of sinning. 
Like you brought this calamity on yourself. And Job says, no, no, no. I didn't keep my wealth for me. I shared it. Job is an example for us. What do you do with your money? Do you help the widow? Do you help the fatherless? And I think it's chapter 31. Job says, from his youth, orphans have been in his household. Like this guy. This guy uses what he's got, his resources, his vast wealth to help people. I love this. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I love that. The poetic language of it. Maybe you need to be eyes to the blind, feet to the lame. Maybe you need to be the healthy person in a hurting person's life. In an unhealthy person's life. In a person that doesn't know Christ at all. Maybe you need to be there for them. For someone that's made bad financial decisions and found themselves in the hole. Job is a wealthy man who has everything taken away. Uh, the other reason, the other reason that there's all these numbers in the beginning, just I'm pointing this out here, okay? You know, the, the, the sheep and the oxen, the seven thousands and five thousands and three thousands, is because by the end you get to see that God doubles what he gets back. Like by the end, everything's doubled, except his children, because you can't replace them. Um, but he does have more children. But all the animals and all the stuff is doubled. Again, children are a little bit different because they're not possessions. They're, they're not stuff. They're people. A little bit different with them. He does have more children though as well. Finally, lastly, Job is a family man who will soon be alone in his worship of God. I love this about Job. So, it says, you know, his sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays. That's verse 4. Some of your translations may read different, each on his day. I think the idea of this is my day would be your birthday. That's my day. My birthday was actually last Thursday. Okay, um, That was my day. Do whatever I want to do. I don't know. Maybe not. Uh, but uh, each day on their birthday, they'd have all the family over. I think that's the idea of it. And they would feast and they would have a great time and the whole family would get together. So it's not that this is not being condemned. It's not like the kids were like having a drunken party. You know, that's not what the scripture is saying. It's very appropriate. They're having a good time together. But Job is saying, I just want to make sure my kids are okay. So he calls his kids together and he consecrates them. You know, he, 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 he does a burnt offering for them just in case they said something about God in their heart that was wrong. And what you see here is Job is like a priest. He's leading his family in worship. Oh, that all of our men, our fathers and our husbands, that we, that I would be like a priest for the family, looking out for the spiritual well-being of our children, even as adult children, even as they're on their own, living in different places, inviting people over to their houses, And Job is still acting like a priest. He's still giving leadership to his family. He's still caring about his kids. Even if he can't control what they do in their heart, which none of us can. We can't control any of our kids. He's still doing what he can on his end. Right? He's doing what he can on his end for the spiritual well-being of his kids. Remember Job's wife later, after everything's taken away? Curse God and die, right? Um, Job won't do it. He won't curse God. He doesn't want his kids to curse God. He is a great leader for the family, a good model for us.
So I hope this has been kind of a helpful way of looking at Job and seeing who he is. But I want to close with one final thing. I want to take you to 1 Peter 2, 22. I want to close with Christ. Because I think Job really is a picture of who Jesus is. Jesus is the ultimate righteous person who suffers. Would you look at 1 Peter? It's behind me here on the screen. 1 Peter 2.22 He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. They continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Jesus is the ultimate righteous man who suffers. And he suffered for you. Suffered to pay for your sin. So can I invite you at this time, if you bow your heads and close your eyes, if worship team can come up and prepare for the last song. If you want to entrust your life to this righteous man, this God man, I would invite you to pray something like this in your own heart. Lord Jesus, I see this morning that you have established wisdom and understanding. But unfortunately, I have fallen so short of fearing you and shunning evil. And so for all the evil that I have done, for all the wrongs that I have committed, for all the ways that I have acted out of step with your commandments that you have established, would you forgive me? And based on the death of Jesus Christ, I know I can be forgiven. The payment's been made. So now, Lord, help me follow you. Help me live a righteous life, a wise life, as I walk with you through the mountaintops and through the valleys of this life. I will trust in the promise that you are always there with me. And guide me safely home. In Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer this morning, with your heads down and your eyes closed, if you prayed that prayer with me this morning for the first time, would you look up at me today, if this was your day, and you prayed today with me? Would you?